Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. Welcome to episode 8 of season 5 of One for the Road. I cannot believe it's the last one of this season. Thank you so much for everyone who's supported it, shared it. Thank you to all my amazing guests. And I couldn't think of a better person to round it off with the incredible Cher Adelican. He is the bass player of the incredible band The Gorillas and probably one of the nicest people I've ever had the privilege to talk to. So thank you again. I hope you enjoy the show and see you on the next one. So Cher, how are you, mate? I'm very well, man. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real, real pleasure. And I was reading your notes earlier that you've uh, toured with Lana Del Rey, Emily Sanders, one of my favourites, Katie Tunstall, and mm. of course, Paloma Faith. And um, your career started at a real young age, didn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, technically, I'm still on my gap year. Like, I was actually meant to be going to uni to read English. Um, I was, I think it was Warwick I got accepted into. I've been saying that for years, but actually, it might have been, that might be a lie now. I can't actually remember. <laughs> um, but um, insert good university here. Yeah, I was gonna. Yeah, I love I love books. I love uh, writing. My brother Bengo, in particular, uh, were both sort of sci-fi geeks. And I thought I was gonna potentially be a writer because I didn't really see how you could make doing music a job. I wasn't really thinking it of it necessarily that way. Um, but while on this gap year, um, I was sleeping on my brother Bengo's couch, um, and he was playing bass for bass guitar. So my brother Bengo Delican, he's also in a band called Metronomy, and. I was sleeping on his couch and he was playing for this indie singer songwriter called Jeremy Wormsley at the time. Uh, and he was like, look, you're not really doing anything. I'm, I can't do this tour. It was like, come on, it was like November, 2007 or something like that. I can't do this tour, try out and see if you can cover me for this tour. And I did. And sort of very long story short, I'm still on my gap here. <laughs> That's an amazing story. <laughs> so where did you grow up? I've kind of grown up all over the place, but I was born in Nigeria. My dad, my dad's Nigerian, my mum's Kenyan, and they met at Manchester University, so it's sort of already kind of a bit of a mad one. But yeah, born in Nigeria, moved to Holland when I was two. Um, so like my first memories of the world are actually in Holland. Um, so this like big Nigerian family and <laughs> sticking out in uh, Den Haag, youngest of six kids. Uh, but yeah, grew up in Holland for a bit. Then I moved back to Nigeria when I was six. Moved here when I was nine. Then I did my sixth form in Ecuador and moved back. Um, so kind of, I kind of have been training to be a touring musician, sort of, I guess, um, forever. Because yeah, we moved around a lot, and I like to think that that's that's been a sort of real strength. I think um, I'm not kind. I'm kind of all right with being in new situations, being around yeah. new people. Yeah. yeah. 
And and uh, was music always in your blood growing up? I mean, it pretty much couldn't be more in my blood. Like, uh, so my mum's a musician. She studied music. Um, she started a career. I think she she was t- doing music for like a Nigerian on like a Nigerian TV station. I think on NTA or something. Um, but she, yeah, she learned music. She actually taught my dad a few guitar chords. Um, but we used to sing as a family. Like, I grew up in a Christian family, so we obviously go go to church um, every weekend. But Monday to Saturday, we'd meet as a family every evening, read the Bible, pray. But we had the songbooks from church um, and just from different sort of Christian songbooks. And we'd sing as a family every night, all eight of us. This was in Holland, uh, in like three-part harmony, uh, which I was just learning. I didn't really know. I didn't get any sort of formal necessarily formal t- teaching that oh this is a third and this is a fifth and this is a seventh this is a ninth but i could just hear my brothers and sisters doing it and my mum doing it so i was learning to hear these things and to sing as i was learning to walk and to speak uh, and we'd, we'd perform as a family sometimes in church on sundays you know and my mum would arrange these parts for us and there was constant like my, my parents didn't listen to any secular music but there was constantly like Christian music or like choral music, quite sort of chamber, old school stuff, all the way up to like contemporary for whenever the time was sort of Christian music. Uh, but then my brothers and sisters, you know, we'd all listen to, you know, whatever. So from like my oldest brother was like into like Naughty by Nature, but then my sister would be into like the pop stuff. And um, it's quite a, quite a cool mix, I'd say. Um, but yeah, it was always in me. Beautiful, mate. Um, I mean, my influences when I was young, one of my heroes back in the day was uh, Level 42. Nice, yeah. Oh, one of the best bass players, man. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And he used to hold his bass guitar quite high and yeah, he used yeah, to yeah. thump against the strings, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a slap, uh, one of the most proficient slap bass players. Like, he used to, like, if you watch videos of him, his thumb is taped up. Um, cause it's just constantly going. It's really, really difficult to do what he does really yeah. hard. So what sort of, um, guided you to the bass guitar? Cause for anyone that doesn't know yet, and I didn't say it in the beginning was you, mm. the bass guitar is for the grillers, which is, yeah. they are amazing. I, when <laughs> Damon Auburn mm. came out with them years ago, I just loved them straight away. Their, their style is fantastic. Mate, me too. I mean, cause I, I was 12 when Gorillaz came out. So yeah. it's like, it's, it's pretty mad for me thinking that I was a fan of the band and now I sort of play in it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I played bass with G- with Gorillaz and with Damon in his solo projects as well. Yeah. Um, and so, like I said, I mentioned my brother Benga. He, he was the bass influence in my initial sort of foray into bass. I was playing a bit of guitar. This was when I was around 13. Um, cause like I said, my dad plays. So I learned a few chords off him. And my mates were starting a band, so I started sort of getting involved in that. Uh, just like sort of skate punk, sort of kind of angsty teenage stuff, obviously. Uh, but he was playing bass and he always, he played with quite an interesting style. So it wasn't necessarily very traditional. He was playing lots of chords and, uh, lots of strumming and it was always quite interesting. And I'd always like sneak a little go, not sneak actually, it wasn't hidden, but I'd have a go on his guitar quite a lot and again my first professional gig was on bass even though at the time I didn't even necessarily think of myself as a bass player but it started when I when I started working with Damon he kind of encouraged me a lot 
and just discovered that I just was really expressing myself. In fact, the phrase he said to me, which kind of changed it was like, mate, you're really expressing yourself on that instrument. And then like, it's just like, oh, right. Maybe I'm a bass player in a guitarist body. Like I'm really, really feeling this. And now actually I find myself being able to just express what's in my head a lot easier on bass than guitar, which is something that I've kind of been playing for longer, I guess. Yeah. So every single guest that I have on my podcast, they say it all came with the line of work while drinking, right? <laughs> yeah. Whatever they are. Estate yeah. agents, yeah. you know, <laughs> musicians yeah. and drinking. Mm. Like, I think you listened to James' podcast last week from Death Havana. Mm. And when I was recording it, he said to me, uh, and I really had to hold my nerve with it, he said that he was singing live on stage and the guitars went up to him and said, mate, the mic's 10 foot over there. Oh. That hit me like a brick because um, I, I mean, it's so mad because there's so many gigs that I've seen that I cannot remember. Yeah. Like great footage. Um, and that's not to say that I necessarily always played Pissed, but I've sort of missed out on like half of my career because mm. I was just out of it. And the problem, actually one of the problems with my drinking, drug use, etc., was like I could always play well. So... I wasn't, I was never a really messy, abusive, angry, blackout drunk. I was always personable and I could always hang out, etc. The dark thing about my drinking and my just abuse in general was like, I'd actually be okay at work, but my life was in absolute pieces. Yeah. Um, and I would, I, I would, perf- I could perform as if my life was all right. Um, but you know, I'd be spending a grand a week on, cocaine and you know not being able to pay rent like yeah. for months and months and months of ducking and diving my brothers and like stealing off my missus do you know what I mean like all this shady shit but mm. uh, but in my head it almost just it almost made like justified it for me it's just like yeah well I can still do my job so yeah I must be all right or it must be all right but that's the thing about drinking in particular with music um I think people sort of recoil from drugs like because it seems like an obvious thing to sort of be wary of. But with drinking, I think like way back from like my first gigs, I remember there just being like beer, like either being like we were sort of 14, 15 when we were playing our first shows at like, this is my, my skate punk band called Autofed. Um, it's playing at the Tumbridge Wells Forum. Uh, big up all the people from Bromley. Like, but you know, you get like a little rider, even though you're like, so underage um but you'd immediately associate playing with drinking from the beginning and it's sort of seen as cool uh it's so part of it uh that it's so and it's so sort of accepted and even though you've seen so many car crashes and you've i mean my goodness some of our the biggest heroes like you know keith richards and stuff like that are famous for being wrecks yeah like (laughs) And but you but you're still drawn to it and you're still attracted to it. Yeah, it's it's really easy to have bad habits in the music industry. Yeah, I mean, I was talking to someone else, Jack 
from Tova, the band Tova, and he says, mm. you know, when you're young and you're going to practice and that, you, you're stoned and you're, mm-hmm. you're drunk and mm-hmm. it's almost like a trophy, isn't it, when you can play well, when you're wrecked and... Yeah, yeah. No, know, it is. It's, it's a... Uh, again, I always, I always had this thing with sort of almost like perfection. It's like, if my playing was all right, then I must be all right. Yeah. Um, which is one of the mad things. Like, I, we're probably going to get onto it probably later, but... It was one of the mad things about going to rehab, which I, I did like a 10 month residential rehab, which was amazing, but brutal at the same time. Like I couldn't touch a guitar, any musical instrument for the first 16 weeks, which was the longest I hadn't played music since I could play music, which is basically yeah. my whole life. So I'm suddenly the thing that gives me value or the thing that makes me seem like, even though that my world is burning down, that thing that makes me seem all right. Is taken away. I can't hide behind it anymore. And I had an absolute crisis of identity, like of just what I wanted to do with my life. If I've been, do I even like playing music? It was, dude, that was hard. All these real inner questions you ask yourself, mm. isn't it? Because you, like alcohol's its own crutch, isn't it? Like, and, and when you remove that, it's not mm. just giving up the drinking, it's what it leaves behind. So for me, it, it was. A lifetime of questions that I've been avoiding came slapping me straight in the face. Yeah. Plus the cravings and what my mates were saying to me and what I was being called because I wasn't drinking. And as you say, the identity, who am I without this? My name was Glugs, right? And that's the cloak I wore. Mm. every time I went out, it's like, Glugs is here, you know, get the beers in. So when I, when I removed that cloak, I was naked standing there. I didn't even yeah. know who I was myself, you know. Mate, I didn't even know if, like, I'd, I'd find myself laughing at a joke and I'm like, do I even like, do I even find that funny? Or am I still pretending, am I still playing the character? Yeah. Um, it was it, it was so horrible just having to face yourself which has both benefits and but you initially can only see the negative when you have to look at yourself completely clearly in the mirror you now have to face all your regrets you have to look at all the mistakes you made you're like all your cringe moments start flooding in like things you thought you forgot but they're like hello i'm actually here and just like you're just uh crunched over in a corner like crying just remembering the wake of horrible things that you've done but then also one thing I found in that eventually uh, with a lot of help and just uh, guidance, but just also just also trying to be objective is that if you're objective about it, you have to find, see the good things in yourself as well. Like uh, you have to objectively look at the terrible things you've done, obviously, because like, you know, seek forgiveness where you can and try and repair things that you can repair. But also it's like, oh, right, actually how did I manage to still play well? Um, I must be actually good at my job. Oh, actually, I've still got my my family around me and my close friends. I'm not completely a piece of shit. Like you have to, because you can really let it just become, like depression is so self-indulgent and you can really, really let yourself go down this spiral. It's like, oh, well, I'm terrible. Oh, well, I'm just like a waste of space. And then that just is a really good excuse to relapse and just to get bang on it again. So you have to, I think you have to find the good things, even in those horrible times to try and claw yourself back. Yeah, it's, it's the victim mentality, isn't it? 
Uh, and it's when you're feeling, when you've removed alcohol, you're vulnerable, aren't you? Mm. And, and it's easy sometimes to go to the victim mentality. So why am I like that? Why can't I drink normally? Who am I without a drink and whatever? But look, even that last question I said, who am I without a drink? Is yeah. who am I without a drink? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know it's, what I mean? And when you look inside yourself and you look at the benefits of it, and I quite often say to people with my coaching, it's like always take the positive out of the situation because it's so easy to look at the negative. But it's what you do with it as well. And we're here in the present right mm-hmm. now. So if you've got regrets, you have to kind of deal with them and think, right, what's the best thing I can do with that now? The best thing I can do is learn from those regrets, make amends if you can. Mm-hmm. If you can't, you've got to live with that. But it's what you can do from here forward. I found that one hard, actually. The things that I can't, like there's some people I've hurt badly that is irre- like seemingly irreparable and I've sort yeah. of had to leave alone and that still hurts. And uh, I think that's probably the hardest one where it's like, actually, no matter what, you know, you, how good your intentions are now, you have to leave some people alone because actually if you start breaking down their door down being like, I'm sorry, it's actually not for you. It's, and it's not for them. It's for you. And actually yeah. that can become hurtful in itself. But like you saying, it's about finding the good. It's like what I found is that, and something that I say, I'm not sure if I got it from somewhere, but the idea in my head is that like the blast radius of your bad decisions is obviously quite wide. Like you, hurt people it affects lots of people people that you don't even know that you're hurting but what i found just since say getting sober getting clean chatting about it um but even not necessarily chatting about it just the mood around the people around me who love me and can see the difference like i found that the blast radius of your good decisions is way further reaching like i'm helped like just me chatting about getting sober as I get so many messages every day from people and from fans across the world who just like, Oh, thank you for sharing this. Or like, I didn't know you could, this is kind of cringy, but it's like saying stuff like, I didn't know that you could be sober and still cool. (laughs) Um, like still do what my, what I do. And they're like, Oh my God, I can't believe that you're sober. And I still, you know, I'm still into your vibe. I thought that because like sometimes playing on stage, you kind of need a bit of a dangerous attitude and you think that that, drinking or doing coke or doing whatever is part of that but it's like that's in you like you that sort of kind of punk attitude and that sort of uh that that controlled kind of danger chaos whatever you want to call it creativity actually thankfully is still in there and i i say to anybody who is a musician or any form of creative who thinks that it's all going to go away when you sober up it's like no 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 it's actually weaponizes you when you when you have clarity because it's like not only do you have clarity access to all your faculties but you have time like you just gain so much time to actually do your projects like at the minute obviously i I play with gorillas and that's about we're about to kick off tour so that's taking up a lot of my time but i also have a radio show on boogaloo radio every saturday that i can do i work out i now go to the gym etc i have time to cook every day and try new recipes um all sorts of different things that, and you know, I just scored a, a like a short film with Harley Davidson with my friend Charlie Morton. Juggling all of these things, I would not have been I, been able to do that at all because, like, I just used to have maybe two or three workable hours in a day, yeah. like, because the rest was either I was out of it or just recovering. Yeah, but like, I could maybe pop out for something, you know. So, 
yeah, you gain you gain so much time and just headspace. Yeah, it's not the actual practicalities of your day. It's the headspace because mm. when you're drinking, the next day you're thinking about the regret from the last day, how yeah. you're going to manifest the next drink. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a constant circle of doom when, when you're drinking. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. when you stop, it, it frees up all this time, as you say, which in your industry is, can allows you to be more creative. But isn't it funny what you said earlier that people expect you to be drinking yeah. on drugs, you know, or hard. Yeah. It's it's like you I used to think this. I think you, you I can't remember if you're chatting about sober shaming uh, yeah, did, with yeah. someone. Yeah, like I used to be one of those guys who was just like I used to say, I don't wanna work with anybody I can't have a pint with. Yeah. And like all of that stuff. And I used to look down on some people who were say sober or whatever. Cause I was like, you're not really rock and roll. You're not really one of yeah. us, but it's like, that's, that's terrible. <laughs> like what a actual horrible thing to. We're all guilty of it. I've said some terrible things. Like mm. I really have. Uh, and I suppose in a way I empathize with people that are like that now because it, it's lack of education in a way that I was ill educated, but now I see the other side, you know, I was on a boat party the other day and there were 200 people on there all sober and it was wow. just, the atmosphere was incredible. Wow. You know, absolutely cool. incredible. It's almost like a rebirth in people where they found a new path in their life with clarity, they're mm-hmm. authentic and all the decisions and choices are made with a clear mind rather than you know, in the morning you're hungover and you're thinking, God, what did I say last night? Did I promise him this? And did I really send that? Message? How am I going to, you know, it's just so, so cloudy. But yeah. how bad did your drinking get before you realised that you had to do something about it? Well, it, so my drinking was always, it was, it was initially just drinking, but then it eventually became coupled hand in hand with cocaine. Um, so it got, I, th- I think right at the end, it was sort of three, three months just in my room, like literally with up to the level of the bed height of bottles, rubbish, old food, could not see the floor. I had to jump over it to get to my bed. And like, I would just would not answer the door, like everything, like my phone was shut off. My internet was shut off. I didn't have any, like anything. I was going to the, you know, whenever I could scrape or, you know, lie into getting some money from someone, you know, go to the uh, offie. And it was just like that bottom shelf wine, like three bottles of barefoot or whatever. Um, any acid I could get, stealing fags off the floor. Because um, I was also uh, gave up cigarettes as well, which was which still sometimes is like, just catches you off guard. You sometimes smell a cigarette. It's like, oh, that smells delicious. Um, that one's hard. But it was it was sort of cutting myself and uh, being completely isolated, like crying, like just constantly crying, remembering some traumatic things that happened to me when I was uh, younger as well. Which that oddly that was one of the things that was surprising. It's like, within the fog of this horrendous moment in my life, I actually got some old memories came back of some sort of abuse that I had when I was a kid. So it's horrendous, but that also is one thing that actually was a bit of a call it God, call it the universe, call it whatever. But it was just a bit like there could be a reason beyond you just being 
a waste of space yeah, yeah. that these things that your life has led to these sorts of things because I grew up in a Christian family. There's no booze in the house ever. Mum and dad do not drink, do not smoke, do not party, do not do any of that stuff. Um, it's, you know, my brothers and sisters, you know, drink, but it's like not like yours. I, yeah. I never saw anybody stumbling about like pissed in the gaff. Um, yeah. You know, all the things I used to do, like getting up to drinking in parks and going to parties and stuff was all like under the table. It was all sneaking out and, you know, so it was, none of that stuff stemmed from home. So it's just like, you, that's also another part of this way. You're like you're sort of trying to find your blaming yourself. It's just like, well, how, why can't I be good? Like, you know, my mum and dad and, you know, I didn't, I wasn't, I was never taught this. So what's this come from? But you find that with say being raised in sort of relatively strict upbringings, you tend to <laughs> rebel. Yeah. I was um, going to say that. Yeah, it, it happens a lot and it's happened a lot to with a lot of my friends. And that's not to say that I, you know, I grew up a believer, but I wouldn't say I am anymore. And, you know, I've got no beef with that. I love my parents absolutely dearly. In fact, my relationship with them is is the best now than it's ever been post, again, you talk about being authentic. It's like I was expecting them to freak out when they really learned the extent of my use and all that stuff. But their response was just like, how can we help? Let's look, I'm going to look for rehabs. Like they didn't give me a lecture, which is what I expected. Like they didn't chuck the Bible at me, which is what I expected. Um, it was just love. Same with my, my brothers and sisters. Um, and my partner, who's just been uh, the best, she's been with me through it all. Um, and it's been a team sport getting me back on my feet and I've just received nothing but love, but I couldn't, I couldn't really put my finger on why like I got it. Cause I didn't get it from my parents or anything like that, but there's lots of little things that have a, sort of led me down this path and it sort of gradually just crept up. So did you use it, do you think quite early as an escape mechanism? Because I did. I was 14 mm. years old and I realised yeah. that it fixed my problem. Well, I liked it because it was not allowed. Um, yeah. That was kind of... The rebellion like in you. Exactly. My friends were doing it. I thought it was cool. Again, like rock and roll, you know, I was in, I was playing this like skate punk music. My idols were sort of doing stuff like that. But I just, you know, just wanted to be involved. I always wanted to fit in, which is one of the products of tra like moving around a lot is that you're kind of always the odd one out. Like when I, like I said, I, I lived in Holland and in Holland, the early nineties, uh, it was, you know, we really was, we stuck out like a sore thumb. It wasn't, it's quite a racist country at the time, but you, I, I realized a little bit later in life that I just remembered how horrible some people were to me at school, uh, you know, being a black kid. So you stuck out there. Then we moved back to Nigeria but I moved back to Nigeria from Europe. So all my mates in Nigeria were like, why are you putting on a weird accent? Um, so I stuck out because I wasn't super Nigerian, you yeah. know? And then, so you try, I, you try your best to fit in, you sort of pick up, uh, accents. And, uh, then I moved to England and it's like, I've come straight from Lagos. And again, like I'm suddenly another with a name like Cher. People are like, Oh, you sound like Cher the singer. And it becomes yeah. a little like joke. Uh, so I'm immediately trying to fit in there. So again, it, it's, it's constant, constantly trying to like have no attention drawn to yourself. Yeah. Um, which at the, but at the same time, attracting lots of attention. Like I always, I always felt that. So when my mates like, you know, as you do, and not to say that there's a healthy kind of drinking when you're 14. <laughs> um, but some people, you know, it's what a lot of people do and you sort of, lots of people grow out of it. 
and it's not it doesn't necessarily become a heavy problem but again it creeps up you start doing it a little bit at house parties on just on the weekend um, with your friends and then eventually you start sort of finding bottles of stuff and just like being like oh what's this like when everyone's at the party you go through the cabinets and have yeah. a swig of whatever i'll call it Burglin. <laughs> <laughs> i used to do it in clubs i mean how grim is that i used to oh. so when everyone went on the dance floor I'd go around nicking people's pints and glugging oh, them down you know and so i mean hectic. that's mad isn't it <laughs> But so when you uh, were booked into the rehab, was that when you mm-hmm. sorted it all out? So, yeah, it was kind of because it was a really drastic change. And actually, it was quite shocking to Kaz, my missus, because I hadn't tried. I didn't try. I'd never tried to get sober or clean or anything before this. I'd never tried to quit drinking. I I, I loved it, like until I hated it. Like and even when I hated it, I still wanted to do it. I'd never tried giving up anything. Um, so I think I was like, Kaz was like a bit like, aren't you going to try something, maybe like a little program or something that doesn't have to take you in, but programs are expensive. And my, my folks managed to find this program called Teen Challenge and it's free. Like you go on benefits to, to sort of go on it. It's a Christian rehab, which turns a lot of people off actually, but it turns out it was a great, great program i walked into the the doors at the willoughby house center so there's a few different centers across the country um it's like in, in wales in london uh sort of near leicestershire glass i think up, up in scotland as well and i just felt love in that place and like april 1st to 2019 i walked in those doors and i've been i stopped everything on that day and it's it's a really hard program because it is 10 months at this center, which is like in the mid, like in the middle of a motorway. So it's nowhere near like any, anywhere really. Um, it's no phones, no TV, no internet. No the guitar. Only th- no guitar. Um, even though, but there was like, there were guitars there because it's a, it's a Christian program. So you, you have chapel like every day and you have like a, you go to church on the weekends and like there was music. That was the hard thing. It's like, I wanted to play in the, church band which i again i grew up doing even though i was doing all my whatever i was doing on the saturday night on the friday night on the thursday night whatever i would always be playing in the church band because i fit in i knew how to do it i knew all the right things to say etc but not only is it hard because like yeah it's 10 months in that place but it's a really demanding program so like and this is coming from someone who has no structure i've been a touring musician self-employed lived in loads of places lived in loads of places like i do i've never had like a daily routine so when you came out after 10 Mm -hmm. months how did you then you were 10 months clean right Mm -hmm. was there any education in there to help you with your drug and alcohol addiction so yeah we did a a little bit but actually it was more on like a spiritual side of things and a lot of people who who came out of the program they were thankfully i had you know come from a family that was able to support me so i actually went from willoughby house i went to my mum and dad's in uh lancashire um up in chorley um so i stayed with them a lot of people go on to like a pro a halfway house or some sort of other program to re because you still have six months on the program where you have to check in every week with your advisor um slash counselor from the center etc but 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 i wouldn't say i I came out with much formal like i didn't learn about 
you know, brain chemistry and, you know, things like that. It was more like on the sort of spiritual, mental, mental side of things mm. of how to deal with addiction and what is done. Yeah. Um, but no, actually thinking about it now, I actually am quite ill educated in the physiological side of um, addiction. It's only through sort of really listening to people like yourself and other, other great sort of podcasters and reading up on things and um, chatting to like um, a therapist. Have I really sort of started to break down that side of things? Um, but what, what Teen Challenge did was not, not just get me clean, et cetera, but sort of sort, help start the process of sorting out my head and my heart. Mm, really. I can see um, it. And to be honest, mate, it, it really doesn't matter how you do it. It's, it's if it yeah, works, you know. Exactly. And, you know, like AA didn't work for me. But since then, I've been more open-minded because I, I've kind of thought I was in the wrong meeting and maybe I should have gone to two <laughs> or three others. Right. Because the people might not have suited me or, you know, and, and really, uh, because I was right at the beginning, I, I, I was, well, this isn't working for me, so mm. what else will, looking for solutions. But the solution was in myself, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and it took me some time to realize that. And with the support of the sober community, which is amazing, isn't it? It's like, unbelievable. I can believe it. Like that's one thing also starting to talk about my sobriety in the music industry. I was really taken aback by the amount of people who messaged me, who I've known for years or I hadn't seen because I was away for a couple of years were like, dude, I'm sober now. I, or people that I had known from before so I, that I didn't realize were sober and not just in terms of playing, but you think about people in record labels, like especially if they, they've been in the industry from like the eighties and nineties when it was like proper, like just cash everywhere. Yeah. Like I know a few sort of publishers who are like, you know, on the sober journey now. And it's like, it's really opened up actually a, a new side of things that was really encouraging because again, you don't really see that, but you're probably surrounded by sober people all the time. Yeah. But also, these conversations that you have as, you know, as a role model, like you are to so many different age groups as well, mm. you know, it creates that spark of conversation in their own mind, right? Yeah. So they're not going to judge and go, what's wrong with you? You're sober now because there's such a movement growing. People will go, God, there's another one and he's amazing and his music yeah, yeah. and the band and God, that makes me feel like, should I sort my drinking up? All these conversations that we have, little nuggets, little one-liners that we say. You know, mm. a good friend of mine, she's given up drinking because she heard me say moderation is like dumping your ex and sleeping with them at the weekend. <laughs> I remember that. That was like, that yeah. was pretty deep. <laughs> do you know what I mean, though? It, I do. And people relate to that. And that, that stuck in her mind. And... She's now a hundred and something days sober. And it was because of that one line. And it's things like you might put out there or the conversations that can have a ripple effect that, that can it's change like I was saying, life. It's exactly what I was saying about how the blast radius of your good decisions goes f way further than you could ever know. Like there's people that you've, that have never said anything to you. I'm, I'm talking about you specifically because what you do is so amazing, but it's probably someone at like your local Tesco's or something who might have known you back in the madness. Yeah. Who's just been looking at you from afar being like, I cannot believe that's the same person. Yeah. Like, it's i've been i've been truly astounded at like and i don't like preaching at people about 
you know, I work with people who, you know, drink, et cetera, whatever. Um, thankfully, I must say this, I'm, I'm super well supported. I'm, I'm actually really lucky to be playing with the people that I play with because, um, again, they've seen it all. They've, you know, they're not scared by anything. They're like, look, if you need, you need us, we're going to give you every help. I've got all the help I, I need. I was asked if I wanted to come back. They didn't expect me to come back because they knew what it is. And thankfully with the pandemic, it's sort of st- slowed my return to doing what we do, which was actually really helpful because I had to do a lot of work. Obviously I'm only three years into this journey. Um, you got, four, it was four years recently, right? No, no, no. I'm the same as you. Um, yeah. I'm three. Uh, you said April, right? 2019. Yeah. 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 I was January. So Man. yeah, I think you saw one of my posts where it says four years ago, uh, right. I had that really, really, big rock bottom that started the process for me you know and you know it's important to say you don't actually always need a rock bottom to do that but for me it was like god you know what i escaped death yeah then and it made me look at it differently it was a real slap in the face you know yeah i mean i'd say you shouldn't don't wait for rock bottom because number one you may not come back (laughs) yeah um 100 but also rock bottom may not be enough because the amount of rock bottoms you should have, you probably went through before hitting that one. Yeah. Like there were so many times when you woke up in places that you shouldn't have been or like end up in hospital or were throwing up for a two days straight. It's like you should have stopped then, but you keep the problem with addicts is like you keep pushing through rock bottoms. Yeah. Like you somehow manage to just tunnel quite easily through stuff. I mean, how many times do you say to yourself, I'm never going to do this again? Yeah. Like, I don't want to do this. And you just find a way. I I would, for those people listening who are um, like, don't, don't let it get to where you have to do it. It's like things happen so much better when you walk into it as opposed to a crash and like fall in. I honestly caveat that with the, the fact that I find, and this is not generalizing to the extreme, but mm-hmm. most men mm. wait for the rock bottom where, where, True. you know, they can't like what you were saying in, in your place, your rehab place is that you get 30 men there trying to deal with their emotions <laughs> and that. And it's, <laughs> it sometimes goes against the grain. Uh, yeah. and, and you know, like yeah, I talk to a lot of men Oh my, my followers were 85% women, right. but the men that are the curtain twitches that, um, might send me a DM and they go, mate, I'm really worried about my drinking. Uh, what mm. can I do? So they think, do you know what? It's that old thing. It's just a few beers with a football. What are you talking about? I ain't got a problem. But deep down, they know they have got a real problem, but they can't even start to begin how to yeah. address that. <laughs> so they hit the rock bottoms, you know. Mm-hmm. But that's what I'm trying to do is to open the conversation that it's okay for men to cry. It's okay for men to reach out and show their vulnerabilities um, and to accept help as well. You know, accepting help is probably because again, I think actually even acknowledging the problem, a lot of men can do, but it's then because you have to not just know it, you have to do something about it and to do something about it. You need to talk to someone. You need to at least raise it with your mates. Like that's really, really hard. Like it was, it was, Again, it was overwhelming how supportive people were. I, I thought, you know, you say you're going to rehab. It's like, okay, you're a failure. 
you know, you're useless, like you've clearly, you know, really, really messed up, etc. But it's like, actually, what it actually is, is you're trying to sort yourself out and the real ones around you are going to be supportive of that. Yeah. Um, and it's like, you'd be surprised at how many people are fighting your corner, like would or will be once you start actually doing something about it. Cause you've said sorry a million times. You haven't paid the money back. You don't, you've lied, cheated, steal, da, 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 da. It's like, no one cares about you apologizing. Like, uh, what's it called? There's one phrase that I think I heard in, we were saying in rehabs, it's like your behavior doesn't lie. And it's like, until you start doing something, you can tell someone you love them all the time, but until you actually show them that you love them in some actual way by doing something, it doesn't matter until you actually make a physical step in this actual physical universe to do mm. something. You can say you're sorry or you like, or you can think you need help or you like, but actually, unfortunately, such fortunately means you actually stepping out and doing something. Yeah. And you also find out who you who the people are around you. So you said before, It'd have been mm-hmm. quite easy for your family to have judged you on it and, and looked at what you had done wrong, but instead they said, "Okay, we're here to support you." And and you find mm-hmm. that with your real true friends because the yeah. the beer mates, you know, your mm-hmm. drinking buddies down the pub, all they're thinking about is how it's going to affect their drinking if you stop drinking. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's true. So they're not your true friends, but the people that stick with you love you for you the essence of you uh and that's that's, important that really is and actually speaking of paloma like she's she's a real one like okay we don't professionally work together anymore but like because i went off the radar i didn't tell that many people that was going in um, but i sort of just disappeared for a bit and it came up it was coming up to like the 10 year anniversary of her first album or something and she was like oh i need to chat to share where is he and she saw that I was sort of a bit able and like was calling up my mates, like uh, my girl Lex. And she was like, Oh, is she, this still shares number. Like, what is he? Like she found my number and she, or she found out what was going on. And then she called up the rehab and like <laughs> the receptionist was like, share, think Paloma Faith is on the phone uh-huh. for you and couldn't believe it. So she tracked, she tracked me down and like had, we had a couple of nice phone calls, um, like she's a real one. Like she was like, Oh, he sounds like he's in trouble. And she's, but she's been a wonderful, beautiful, beautiful support as have like, again, my, all my closest friends from, you know, I'm from Bromley and all my sort of bezies are, have been not that they've condoned everything. No, they haven't just been like, Hey, like I heard, I learned a lot of home truths. That was a hard thing as well. Like hearing my family was supportive, but I got some letters in there of my family telling me how, hard it had been and just like breaking down how hurt they were for certain things, which was ultimately healthy. But also with some of my friends, like they hasn't just been a completely easy route back, but what has helped has been my consistency in changing the way that I live. That's been the best apology that I could ever do to anybody. It's like, well, I'm actually now actively clearly a different person and doing way, way better. And that that's really helped to mend uh, relationships that's what I said earlier about being in the present, right? Because some of the things I did, I was under the influence of a highly addictive, toxic drug that is accepted mm-hmm. all over the world, right? And I bought mm-hmm. into it straight away. I was like this Bitcoin maniac that has gone, yeah, this is it, <laughs> from the age of 14, right? And I I was yeah. hook, line, and sinker. And, and a lot of the things yeah. I did, I didn't even know I did. So I kind of excuse it in a way that, look, 
I really wasn't myself back then, but I'm my true authentic self now, trying to live mm-hmm. my best life, trying to be the kindest, most honest, giving person I can be for myself and others. And that's how I try and make up for it now because yeah. giving back is a huge thing in this community. Yeah, it really is. And that's not to say that once you are sober, everything's all right. And that's not to say that you become a perfect person. It's uh. like... Yeah, not at all. You, but it's still like it is a process, and you're still working on stuff. Like it's not, it's not an immediate switch or anything like that. You still make mistakes. Like, yeah, you make mistakes when you're pissed. You still make mistakes when you're sober. Yeah. And it never will be. There's, there's no finish line yeah. to sobriety. You exactly. have to work, work at it for the rest of your life. But you're giving yourself the best chance you can, and that includes. Mm-hmm. Even food choices, health, you say you go to the gym, conversations with people that you remember. There's a million things on the list you can add to sobriety that, you know, creativity. What What's your Mm – you're 34 this year. What is your music Mm -hmm. ability going to be like in 10 years' time through having a clear mind? Whatever it is, bloody invite me, mate, because – yeah, no, definitely. I mean, we got some shows coming up, mate. Give me a shout. No, like I, I already feel it. Like I know I'm better now than I was, you know, three, four years ago. Like I've never felt so confident and so competent. Like before, I like it was so horrible. Like I was, I'd be on stage in front of say fifty thousand people. All I wanted to do was get off stage and have my line and have a drink. Like yeah. by the end of it, it was just like playing shows was getting in the way. Yeah. Um, and on top of that, I was the whole time not confident. Like I looked, you know, I was like having it on stage. But in my head, I was thinking, oh, mate, that was shit. Oh, that was shit. Oh, mate, am I in time? Oh, God. Like, oh, people look at me. I'm terrible. Da, da, da. Like it was such a, it was, it, I felt terrible. Like a lot of the time, which sounds horrible to say and mad to think that you, I'm doing this amazing job and playing these great shows. But in my head, I was like, this is crazy and i felt really insecure but now that i'm sober I, i'm still a little bit like because there's insecurity there but i know that i'm good at what i do like it's not clouded in mm. any rubbish anymore it's like mm. i feel good because i've worked hard and like these we just did uh, 10 straight days rehearsals for this uh, new gorillas tour which were really hard but they were the most productive rehearsals we've ever had. I think everyone is just like, we just, we've had a few years off. We're ready to rock and roll. Everyone's like a bit clearer. There's a, you know, other people sort of in, some people like on in a recovery journey. Some people like, there's just a beautiful atmosphere and everybody wanting the best for everyone else. And which has always been the case, but it's just like, there just feels like, it feels like a new breath of fresh air. I don't know. And we just, we're just so on fire because mm. we're just a bit, there's just a bit more clarity there. And I've, mm. I've actually never felt better. Have they, have they seen a big difference in you? Have they mentioned it? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Like, yeah, it's it's been really lovely actually hearing that feedback. And in one respect, it's been great to people say like, oh, you look great. Like I've put on some timber, all of that. But people have been commenting about the things that I care about. It's like, not just that I look good, but it's like, oh, I'm playing well and... Uh, oh, you look so bright and, you know, you, you can really tell that you're feeling the energy, good about yourself. Energy. Like, 
yeah it translates like you don't realize how far that can get like you project when you're feeling good about yourself you project it one of the saddest things that um from when i was still using i heard like i remember being at victoria station going through the barriers about to get on a train and um getting tapped on the shoulder and it was my friend hannah um I hope she doesn't mind me saying this. My friend Hannah and her mum and her sister. And, you know, when you, I was in such a darkness at that time, like really, really sad, really down. And I was like, oh, hey, guys, I can't really talk. I'm, you know, because I didn't want to see anybody. I didn't want to speak to anybody. I just wanted to sit on the train. I was like, hey, bye. But I heard years later that the way I looked, just even from behind, you could tell how dark I felt because I, because I think, Hannah said something like they thought I was someone they they looked at me and just like oh that person looks so sad like oh shit mm. I think we should get that person some food or something because from behind I looked you could tell that I was just super super low sorry Hannah if I didn't recount that story well um but what I'm trying to say is it the darkness was palpable it was it was clear, even without looking at my face, that my body language, the mm. way my clothes were hanging off my body because I was so, so thin. Yeah. It was like, oh man. And they, then they realized, oh shit, that's Cher. Just like then said hello, but it's like, fuck. Like, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I thought I was still relatively slick, but I was projecting all this funk because I was just bringing this darkness with me because I hated being out. Like I hated leaving my flat for whatever reason, like, cause I just didn't want to bump into anybody. Um, I got super agoraphobic by the end of it. Like I just get like anxiety about leaving the flat, about having to face anyone and face any, anything full stop. Like my, when my phone would ring, I had to change my phone ringtone because it was so, it's still to this day, I hear it like this Samsung ringtone and it's so triggering to me because it's the, it's the sound I avoided like the plate. Yeah, I, I, I really not. relate to that. Yeah. Because I, I lived on mine for 10 years and in the end, even my neighbours, I lived in a row of six cottages, right? Mm. Um, so everyone kind of, it's like a little commune. <laughs> right. But when I started drinking, my isolated drinking kicked in. They say, mm. oh, we're having a party Saturday night. Come and join us. I used to sit in, in the dark, behind the sofa with a, bo- a litre of vodka and some tonic because I didn't want to go next door because I didn't want to socialise. I didn't mm. want to have my drinking controlled either because I thought I've got to talk to people. I can't get too yeah. drunk. I look like shit. Um, yeah. So I sat, it, it was the weirdest thing. Ugh, it's not and then the I one, would like, crawl up on my hands and knees to bed and fall into bed and, and, and I could hear it all going off in the garden laughing fun. and I was almost like F off you know like angry almost, yeah you know I had that the Christmas before I went in like I think I told I told people that like that I was on my own at for that Christmas I had I've been invited to different things for that Christmas but I was just like I was I, I turned people down I ended up just have, Christmas was like a few bottles of wine and an eight ball alone, like you say, in the dark, just in my flat, being sad, but also being angry that I wasn't, that no one was breaking my door down, dragging me out to their Christmas thing. I was like, doesn't anybody care? But I was like, well, I said no to everyone. Like I yeah. told people that I was fine or I was, or I lied saying, oh, I might be spending it here or something. That isolation, which is the, it's the, it feeds the worst thing you, you could possibly do is like yeah. keeping secrets and isolating. Like that's when, that's one of my, my sort of um, red flags that I, when I know that I'm probably on the road to sort of relapse, which happens way before you actually take anything. But it's like when I start hiding 
where I'm going or if I start lying about little things like that, um, just saying I'm like, oh, I'm too busy to do something and just like, there's just shady stuff like that, which is just telltale signs that you're probably headed back. Yeah. Red flags. In, in, that, in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, you've got to be wary of, of those things. Like, I mean, I've had it with sugar, obviously since being sober, which has been a, yeah. a big one. I had it with alcohol free beers. Like I found my, I, which I do like every now and then, but it's like, I, but at one point I was just like, mate, I was having them every night. I was just like, that's, What's the, what am I doing? Like, yeah. what is the point? That's not, it's not, it's not one-to-one, obviously, because I used to get absolutely fucking smashed, but stuff like that is like, okay, I need to not do that for a while or yeah. for who knows. Um, I moved on to the kombucha now. We, oh, I love um, a bit of that. But it's, <laughs> yeah, I know. I live, I live next to a waitrose, man. <laughs> it's got to be done. Um, yeah, yeah, bougie. Um, and I've got money for kombucha well. now because I'm not, <laughs> yeah, I'm good for your gut. That's another thing, man. You've got so much more money, um, which, you know, you can still make mistakes with and can still waste and squander, but at least I'm squandering, I'd be squandering my money on my sort of terms, you know, and not on like yeah. some illegal stuff or, you know, yeah. like, cause I would just have no cash, like finishing tours, like world tours and having no money to show yeah, for it. Madness, it's like ridiculous. It? Just chucking it oh, away. God. But terrible. look, I'm aware of the time because my podcast is, you know, one for the road. I like to keep it within an hour. And I can honestly say that I could talk to you for absolute hours. You've got a lovely, mate, lovely energy it. about you, mate. And honestly, you're just the loveliest guy. Thank you. And I appreciate, appreciate you coming on. What, before we go, what have you got coming up so the listeners can uh, look forward to coming to see you, maybe? So, yeah, like I said, Gorillas were on the road for the first time in a long time. So we're about to kick off a tour. Like, I leave a week, a week today, actually, to head to Uruguay. So we're going to be in South America for a month, but then we come to Europe and do like two months of festivals and some of our own shows. So we're doing, uh, in England, though, we're playing All Points East Festival. Um, it's the end of August, I think. Um, and there's loads of stuff on the continent that would be really fun to come to. And at the minute, that's all I think we've announced. Um, hopefully there's going to be some more shows. Um, again, it's still kind of mad doing shows because you don't know if COVID or like we had to cancel two shows, obviously, because we're going to play Moscow, then Kiev. Yeah. Um, so that's not happening. Oh, okay. Um, you just don't know what's, um, what's around the corner. So, um, hopefully there'll be some more shows. We'll see. But at the minute, all points east is our only London show. Hopefully there might be a Dublin show as well. But yeah, we'll just have to wait and see. But yeah, head to like the Gorillas website and it might be worth coming to like Primavera or if you're looking for a good summer fezzy on the continent, we're doing lots. So come check us out. Fantastic, mate. You're a real inspiration. You really are. And I feel so grateful that um, you've agreed to do this. And I'm sure people are comment after. And I, I know they'll be saying, what an absolutely lovely guy. Oh, so, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> no, they will. Trust me. They will. I, I know my listeners. And you are mm. anyway, whether they do or not. So <laughs> I, I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah. Like me, please. The bloody addict in me, just like wanting it. Um, but not, mate, I, I, I only recently got into listening to your podcast, but I've literally, like I was saying, we're just doing those uh, rehearsals for 10 straight days. On the way uh, to rehearsals every day, I was popping it on and I found your story and just the guests you've had on just so, so inspiring. And again, the sober community, which I've discovered through 
social media has been so cool and it's opened so many doors and it's challenged me a lot in a lot of ways. Like, cause again, I didn't do a 12 step program, but yeah. looking into say things from that that I think would be useful and like checking out someone else's kind of style of recovery or whatever. Some, I know some people who aren't completely abstinent. I know some people still smoke. It's like, Oh, there's all this like conversation. Like you say, like you're a gray area, right? Um, yeah. Sort of looking at, not just being on a side, like I'm a 12 step side, I'm a complete, like, it's like, how can we all make each other better? And I always say this, that this is a team sport. You cannot do it alone. There's no, no way you can do it alone. And yeah, yeah, we, everybody needs help no matter who you are. Yeah. And, and where you say I'm a gray area, I'm a gray area drinking coach, but I was never that because I was right down the other end of the scale. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I feel that's more specialist. So I, I help people that have got other things going on. And also, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, we li- if you can listen to someone without judgment, that alone is really giving more support to someone than that you realize you know, yeah. without saying, well, try and do this, can't you do that? And like, just listening yeah. for people to yeah. unload that is mm-hmm. such powerful work. Because there is nothing worse than someone telling you how to sort your life out. It's ah. just like, you don't Especially know. Especially like being told what to do, like me. Exactly. Like, yeah, like a lot of people. Um, and actually, what's even worse, what could be more damaging is if you're a super subservient person who, say, because of tra- trauma or whatever, it's like, you just agree with people like I'm a people pleaser. So, you know, which is an issue to, to, to the extent that it can be, but it's like you could suggest something to someone that may actually harm them, but they'll do it because say someone who's prominent has yeah. suggested it. Yeah. Like it's really, it's re- you have to be really sensitive. And like you say, the first and easiest thing you can do to help someone is just let them talk to you. Yeah. Um, and that is the, that is actually the strong, one of the best things you could possibly do, especially if you're starting on the sobriety journey, don't think about a program. Don't think about buying anything. Don't think about spending a single cent. Find someone just to talk to. Yeah. Like it's going to help a, a, a you. A close friend, you know, yeah. someone you trust just to get the process going. Even if you're not ready to give up drinking, if, if you can <laughs> over <make> it, a <laughs> pint. <laughs> yeah. If need be. Well, but that's true though, mate. It, yeah. it, it's true. It's like you could have a pint and say, I'm really beginning to feel quite anxious about how much I'm drinking. Uh, yeah. And that, that starts a ball rolling. And, you know, as soon as you open the door, mm-hmm. it can start that process, you know, uh, and that's what happened with me in that April four years ago when, when I, I just thought I, enough, the party's got to end here because otherwise I'm going to end, you know, yeah. uh, and the realization of that, it took me another few months to do it. But in those few months, I had various different conversations with people that I trusted. Mm. And then I came to that decision on my own, which was rock and roll, the best thing. Share yeah. my man. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dave. Good luck with everything, and I hope to see you and meet you in real life very yes, soon. Mate. Hopefully, man. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure, mate. Bless. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of One for the Road. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can now download my app, Sober Dave, on the Apple and Google Play Store. And on there, you will find lots of tutorials, 
tips and support to help you stop drinking. And there are also meditation audios, food plans, and chat forums. You can also find me on Instagram at SoberDave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. But until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.